0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio On the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio And streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book
0: publishing world. On today's show, journalist and author Joanne Lipman discusses her new book, That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Then, Mesha Burnett, PW's associate editor for Children's Reviews, explores children's audiobooks.
1: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. Not a lot to talk about. No. Fire and Fury is continuing to triumph over the entire rest of the list. Mm-hmm. And uh, on hardcover fiction, there's just not much. Um, we have a new number two, Fall from Grace by Danielle Steele. And uh, we don't have a review of this, but uh it's according to the jacket copy It's about a woman whose life is totally upended when her husband dies, and she learns that. He failed to include her in his will. Mm. So she goes from being pampered and wealthy and happy to broke and devastated. And this is how she makes a new life for herself in the fashion industry. Oh, so wow. That's a number two. No surprise. Danielle Steele, always a big bestseller. And uh, moving down the list, the only other debut in fiction is Need to Know by Karen Cleveland. That's at number 11. And uh, We say that former CIA analyst Cleveland's assured, if thinly plotted debut is an unusual mix of family drama and spy thriller. The the narrator is a CIA analyst named Vivian, who's uh, part of a team searching for agents running sleeper cells in the U.S. And uh, she lives with her four young children and doting husband. And there are many flashbacks that chart the Mm. couple's relationship coming up to the present day. We say the deep backstory may attract readers not usually drawn to espionage novels, but thriller fans who like tradecraft and action will have to look elsewhere. So that's uh, an interesting attempt at breaking the genre boundaries, right. and that's what we've got.
0: Well, and as you said, in nonfiction, uh, Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury. I mean, that sold another couple hundred thousand this week, bringing the total up to almost eight hundred thousand since it was published. So, and I remember talking; we we spoke with Jim just a couple of weeks ago when the uh, excerpt, or at least news about the book, was released before the publisher had all the books ready. So there were a lot of uh, 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 downloads, uh, mm-hmm. audiobook downloads, but and then they rushed seven hundred thousand copies, and it looks like they you know. They They've had to go back for more, so uh, it's all good for them. But uh, we only have uh, four debuts. They're mostly in the self-help genre. The first one at number two is 12 Rules for Life an Antidote to Chaos by uh, Jordan Peterson. He's a a clinical psychologist and he's given uh, talks on the world's most popular public thinkers and and lectures on on the Bible. And here he provides 12 uh, principles for how to live a meaningful life, uh, how to get your house in order and along those lines. So then at number three, we have a a book by James Patterson and Alex Abramovich, The All-American, and murder: The Rise and Fall of Aaron Hernandez, the superstar whose life ended on Murder's Row. So that's at number three. Uh, Hernandez was an uh, NFL football player for the Patriots, and and this is about th- the crime he committed, and then how uh, he died in prison. So this is this is coming from uh, James Patterson's uh, uh, James, James Patterson book. So number four: Rise and grind, outperform, outwork, and out hustle your way to a more successful and uh, rewarding life by Damon John. He's the author of the uh best-selling The Power of Broke. And finally at number 11, uh we have Get Better 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work by Todd Davis. So, uh we we're uh we're going to see uh A couple more titles come out about uh, improving relationships at work. It's a big topic right now.
1: Yeah, that's no surprise. And in fact, that's what our next guest is going to talk about.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, Joanne Lipman tells us what men and women can do to make workplaces safer and more supportive for everyone. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Peter Manso, author of The Apparitionists, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Today we've got Joanne Lippman on the line. Her new book is That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Joanne, so glad you could join us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. So you couldn't have asked for a better time for this book to come out. Everyone is talking about these topics. What inspired you to write this before this whole national conversation started happening?
2: You know, actually, you're you're right. I started working on this book more than three years ago, um, and the reason I started working on it in the first place is because there are so many issues that women face at work that we talk about amongst ourselves all of the time. And, you know, the, the sexual harassment and the predatory behavior, that's the extreme. But what we face every day, not every woman is sexually assaulted at work, but... Every woman knows what it feels like to be marginalized, not heard, interrupted, just not given the, the respect that men get at work. And every woman knows that feeling. We talk about it amongst ourselves and we have books and we have conferences and all of that is great. But I got to feeling that, um, you know, it's half of a conversation, women talking amongst ourselves. Uh, Can at most fix half of the problem, and if we really want a solution, we really need to bring men into that conversation.
0: So, I'm going to talk a little bit about your background before we we get into the the philosophy and the arguments in your book. So, you're the editor in chief of the USA Today Network, and you started a career uh, at the Wall Street Journal, uh, which included the founding of Cade Nast Portfolio Magazine. So, tell us about some of the experiences and conversations you've had with other women in the field of journalism.
2: Sure. So I've been, um, as you said, I've been in media for a really long time and um, I grew up professionally surrounded by men. Uh, When I joined the Wall Street Journal, most of my colleagues were men, uh, certainly a lot more women joined subsequently. Um, But, you know, we covered men primarily. Uh, The audience was primarily male. And so I was surrounded by men. And what was interesting to me is that I had a great experience with my own male colleagues. All of my mentors were men, and um, they really helped me along in my career. Um, and and it's actually one of the impetuses behind That's What She Said, which is, if women are discussing these issues that, that are slowing us down, um, and yet there's all of these men, the vast majority of men are not predators. The vast majority of men are good guys who would like to be part of the solution if only they knew how. And I really wanted to extend a hand to them and kind of let them in on our secrets um, so that we can all work together on this. And I would say that, you know, as a woman, um, particularly when I started, um, you know, it was a a different time than it was before Anita Hill. Um, I've written about how uh, one of my first interviews that, um, that I ever did was with a business owner. And I was 22 and I went to go interview this man and he closed the door, he locked the door, and he stripped to his underwear. <laughs> oh, and, wow. And wow. Yes, yes. And I was, so, I, you know, it, on the one hand, it was terrifying, but on the other, it was, a, it was a power move, as so many of these things are that we're seeing. And I was determined not to let him rattle me. So I took out my reporter's pad, and I interviewed him in his underwear. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to my office, and I told my editor, uh, the editor on the story about it, what had happened, and his response was to laugh. Like, he thought it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. And his point of view at that time was, you know, good for you, you young lady, you're earning your stripes in a man's world. And uh, you, you fast forward to now, and that would never happen. So I think we have had considerable progress since then.
0: So, we begin our starred review of your book uh by saying that you make a bold statement with this important book by examining the biases favoring men and and in business let's talk about those biases first
2: sure, sure. So so much of the bias that is built into the system there's a, this institutional wall of sexism, but so much of it is unconscious bias. So what I experienced early in my career there with that the the man and the you know who strictly was under that was overt, right? Right. What we see much more frequently now is a much more subtle thing that's going on, unconscious bias, which we talk a lot about and that's what she said. And that unconscious bias is men and women both have it. Um, and a little of it has a really deleterious effect. So uh for example, um Rice University actually did a computer model of if you look at a workplace that starts out at the entry level, 50-50 male-female, and you program in just the tiniest little 1% bias, by the time you get to the top level of that company, it's 65% male. And what's so important about this is that this isn't simply a workplace issue. And what we talk about in that's what she said, is how this starts, and it starts very young. It starts um at home in infancy, really. It starts from the very beginning. And I, I I walk through the research that, you know, for example, mothers of infants um routinely overestimate how quickly their sons begin to crawl, and they underestimate how quickly their daughters begin to crawl. And then of two parents of two year olds um who ask Google, is my child a genius? overwhelmingly asked that about boys, not about girls. Um, And and it goes all the way up at every age group. One of the most astonishing um, pieces of research I ran into was actually on first graders. Um, They gave first graders a math test, and you would think math, pretty much black and white, right? Um, And then they had teachers grade the papers first with no names on them. With no names on them, the girls outscored the boys, then the same papers were graded with names on them. And this time, the boys outscored the girls. So what we are seeing is from a very, very young age, there's this built-in, unconscious, completely unconscious bias against girls and that gives boys the benefit of the doubt. And, and it goes all the way up until, you know, when you're in college, a girl needs to have an A average to be seen as the equivalent of a boy with a B average. And then that goes further into the workplace. So we really have to start, you know, we it's it's really beyond the workplace. We really have to start early.
1: Speaking about this from a journalism perspective is really important because journalism is one of the things that shapes the way people view the world. So how much of that is your, is part of your angle and your approach here? Looking at what journalists can do to, uh, for example, as you said, um, m- much of the coverage at the Wall Street Journal when you were starting there was of men. What can journalists do to expand that coverage? Make sure their coverage is fair and address those unconscious biases so that we're not then transmitting them out into the rest of the world, our, our readership, our listeners?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I'm so glad you asked that question because that is such an important point. Um, you know, one of the issues that we have with um, having so few women in leadership in journalism and in other fields is it really slants the way that we view the world and that we present the world. So in journalism, um, which is still overwhelmingly run by men, most journalistic organizations. I'm one of very few women who has run, as, you know, one of the large news organizations. I have 3,000 journalists. Um, and it does change the way you present and view the news. And, and I will, you know, one great example of that, frankly, is if you think about just a year or two ago, coverage of Bill Cosby, Mm. who was accused of drugging and and sexually attacking women, being a sexual predator, was primarily covered on the entertainment pages. Michael Jackson covered primarily on the entertainment pages. It, It wasn't until this fall, and I give great credit to both the New York Times and the New Yorker, not just the reporters, but the leadership, for putting those stories out there on the equivalent of the front page, of saying this is real news, this is not entertainment news, this is a social issue that we need to, that, that infects all of society. And it's those kinds of decisions, you know, the, 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 the the sexual, you know, a Harvey Weinstein story a year or two ago may have been treated simply as an entertainment story. And we never would have had the moment that we have now.
1: So what do men need to know about working well with women?
2: So a lot of what we talk about and that's what she said comes down to awareness. So I, I, I crisscrossed the country and the globe, um, talking to men primarily. Um, and I really was seeking out men who are trying to close the gap. And what I did is I spoke with them about, you know, steps and missteps and also, you know, what tactics and strategies did they learn as they were making their way in working with women. And, uh, and, uh, you know, what I found was, um, there's so much that is, that, we can counteract. Uh, we can't change our own unconscious bias, uh, but what we can do is recognize it and then take actions to correct it. And I'll give you a few pretty simple examples um, that anyone can actually do. So, so for example, women, the research shows, um, we always think we're interrupted more than men, and it turns out we are right. That's not our imagination. Um, women are interrupted three times more frequently than men. And there was even research done on the Supreme Court that found that female Supreme Court justices are interrupted three times more frequently than male Supreme Court justices. So men who become aware of this, the good thing is once you see it, you can't unsee it. You'll see it everywhere. So uh, one of the people I speak to in the book is, um, is a television producer named Glenn Mazzara from The Walking Dead and The Shield, very successful shows. And he noticed that in the writer's room that the women writers never got their ideas across. Their ideas were not being, um, accepted. And he said it took him a little too long to figure this out. But what he finally realized was that the women were being interrupted by the men in the room. And as a result, they never got their uh they never had the ability to even get their ideas out so he created new rule no interruptions for anyone who's pitching an idea and that immediately fixed the problem so the women and the men both um you know could get their ideas out um you know another easy example that any one of us can can do with with just some awareness is um women generally if you make up less than about a third of a room your voice really isn't heard. And I think almost any woman, probably every woman listening, has had that experience where you say something and you think you have a kind of a smart point or an idea and nobody seems to hear it. It's like crickets. And then two minutes later, some man repeats exactly what you just said. And suddenly, Bob is a genius. What a great idea, Bob. Um there's a reason, you know, appropriation has entered the lexicon, right? Um but that's a that is actually a significant and real issue and the men that I spoke with said that once they became aware of that, they were able to first of all give credit to the woman, um amplify the woman as in say, you know, Susan, hey, that was a great idea. Um and then repeat her idea so to make sure that it stays in the ether and that it gets traction and that she gets credit for it. So there's a whole variety of of strategies and tactics like that, that um, once you're aware of them, you can actually really move the needle.
0: And the second part of that, which is the second part of your book's subtitle, is what do women need to tell men? What's what's their part of the conversation?
2: Right. So, you know, so much of what we see is um, with women is uh that we again we have talked with ourselves amongst ourselves about these issues. And and so I th- it's so important to engage men. You know, Catalyst, which is an organization, a nonprofit that looks at working women. And they actually went and surveyed men, um, to, they went to senior executive men to say what might prevent you from championing equality at work for women? And 51% of the men actually said lack of awareness of what the issues are. And 74% of the men cited fear. And the fear was, you know, some of the fear was fear of being embarrassed by other men or losing status among other men. But part of that fear was fear of saying something wrong. And so this is where I think women can come in. We, we've got to eliminate the fear factor. And so much of what... Um, I hope to achieve with that's what she said is to do exactly that is to make this conversation discussable. Men should not be feel like they have to flinch or walk around on eggshells. Um, this should be something that we all can discuss in open company because otherwise we will not be able to um, get to a solution. Uh, one other thing that women can do is is simply point out um some of these issues that are invisible to men there's so many things that women do all day long um, everything from you know how women um, modulate their voices how how you know women do a lot of up-speak, like sounds like a question we know that we try and cut it you know nip it in the bud um but just even communicating some of those things i i actually had an experience myself in um in a news meeting once where um, where the women, like the men, if they're, you know, let's say gas prices are rising, a male editor would bang the table and say, we need a piece on gas prices. A woman might say, hey, has anybody noticed that gas prices are rising? I wonder why. And that man and that woman are saying exactly the same thing. It's just that very often I would see some man in the room would start mansplaining, <laughs> you know, giving her the answer. She's not looking for the answer. She is saying the same thing. We need the damn story on gas prices. And I once pointed that out to a male colleague, an editor, um, and it changed the way that he engaged in meetings. He stopped answering the question and started saying, hey, you know, so-and-so, this woman has a great point. We should do that story. Right. So part of it is just understanding how we communicate with one another and, and making sure women make adjustments all the time for men, and and I'd like men to do the same for women.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW Editors Rose Fox and Mark Cortella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and Conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Joanne Lippmann, author of That's What She Said. You make the argument that women themselves have played a role in devaluing their own work. How so? And how much of that comes from these mannerisms and, and some simple differences in the ways that they present their ideas.
2: Right. So, so much of what we're talking about, again, goes back to childhood where girls learn how to play with one another by collaborating and being cooperative. Boys learn to play with one another by playing games where there's a winner and a loser. And you fast forward to adulthood and you end up with the same thing um, where men and women communicate in different ways. Um, one of the most interesting uh, pieces of research that I that I found while, while working on That's What She Said is about um, women are told, we are told all the time you should demand to be paid what you are worth. If there's a pay gap, you need to step up and ask for a raise. What I found in the research was women don't always know what they are worth. One of the most interesting pieces of research that I came across, again, this is six-year-olds, six-year-olds are uh, were asked to do a task and then to pay themselves in Hershey kisses. The boys at age six pay themselves more Hershey kisses than the girls do. They repeat that experiment in middle school and high school with money. The boys pay themselves as much as 78% more. So that translates. So if you look at adult entrepreneurs, male and female entrepreneurs, you can set your own pay as an entrepreneur. Men, male entrepreneurs, pay themselves more than female entrepreneurs. So part of this is a lack of understanding what women, you know, women understanding what they truly are worth. I do think that one really positive development, and relatively recent, is there's much more data available now. So you know, you can go to a salary.com or Glassdoor.com. There's a variety of these sites that collect information and. That is always going to be your best defense and your best offense um, is having um, having the facts there to, to argue your case.
0: So you had talked about interviewing people before, men in companies, and certain uh, companies or, or producers who have become aware of, of the gaps in, in women presenting ideas and not being heard. But you also talk about companies that have begun leading the way for equal pay for, for women, we were just talking about, such as GoDaddy, which kind of started off with a, a, an advertising campaign that was pretty sexist. What happened there? Yes.
2: So this is so interesting. So we know, you know, I spend a lot of time with Silicon Valley companies, with Google, with Facebook. I talked with GoDaddy, um, with Salesforce. Uh, I also spoke with consumer products companies like, like Kimberly Clark, big paper maker. Um, I actually, I went to Harvard Business School where they're trying to, to, to start this process early to try and, and wipe out these biases early. Um, I went to Iceland, which is the number one country in the world for gender equality. Um, but what's so interesting is those that have become sort of aware of the issues really make an effort to combat it and you can make a difference. So GoDaddy is a great example because GoDaddy was known primarily for the most sexist Super Bowl ads ever in history. Like they would, they were so far to the edge that they used to get their ads rejected. Um, and they would have to kind of tame them down. I mean, they were horrendous, right? So um, they got a new CEO, and the new CEO, um, Blake Irving, uh, who actually just just retired. But Blake Irving was an interesting guy because he came into this company. He... Had um, a formative experience with. He had a a sister named Lori Irving, who was actually quite an expert in her own right on bulimia and other issues affecting women. And and she had a very sudden um, and tragic death. Um, uh, You know, a sudden. I I think it was like a stroke or something. And and um, uh, he was really impacted by that. And he felt like he wanted to carry on her work of championing women. So he she ends up as the CEO of About the Most Sexist Company out there, and and he really made that effort. And what I learned from him is it's so important to understand that changing a company culture comes from the top. It comes from the CEO, and by the way, it also comes from the CFO, the C- Chief financial officer because companies, all of the research will tell you companies that have a more diverse workforce that have more women in leadership are more financially successful. There is a real business case for this. Um, and and so it really is the the realm of the leadership of the company. Too many companies, they sort of offload this to HR. And HR is like, okay, we'll do a few hours of diversity training and we're done, right? That will never change a culture. You know, it's all well and good to try and do that, but that doesn't change a culture. You have to have it at the at the senior level. Um, some really interesting work being done by Google and Facebook because both of them have a terrible woman problem. Um, very few women have made it. They're 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 uh, overwhelmingly male employees. Um, but I spent time with uh, one of the uh, one of these Google data scientists. Um, whose job it is actually is to try and understand and change the culture and wipe out unconscious bias. And um, we talked a lot about sort of the, the measures that they take the uh, the idea that um, you know, they changed their interviewing process um, because they were finding that, you know, people were like women and minorities were not getting through the interviewing process. Um, and they've instituted various kinds of training Um it's tough. It's really hard to move the needle. You know, they're still, they, they, they're still considered one of the most difficult companies for women to work at. Um, uh, And so, but it is interesting to me that you do have people inside who are saying, okay, we know there's a problem in our industry. Maybe we in our industry can help to actually turn the tide. And at that you know, I mean, it's not easy, not easy at all. Um, but again, CEOs, you know, the CEO of Kimberly Clark, Tom Falk, is also a great example of this. He talks about, in that's what she said, he talks about this, this board meeting where he had the top executive for tampons, uh, Tampax, which they, which they own, um, giving a presentation to the board. And the, the top executive talking about tampons is a man. And he said, you know, he was approached quietly by a board member afterward who said, you really don't have a woman here who can talk about tampons. And and he said it was just sort of a, an aha moment that he realized 99% of his customers are female, and yet only about 20% or so of his top management is female. And And he made a concerted effort. And as he said to me, he thought he was a good guy. You know, he talked the talk. He would talk about the issues. And he said he realized that that simply wasn't enough. You really, it has to come from the top. You have to build it into your culture. He actually ended up building it into the incentive system. So when you're in the bonus pool, there's four parts of the bonus pool. And one of those parts includes hiring and promoting and, and the retention of uh, women, and, and so there's a real incentive built into your system to make sure that you're doing the right thing.
0: So I, I want to ask, what has uh, at, at USA Today? Uh, what what has been done there, and what have you? Uh, what what ideas and, and uh, actions have you put forth there?
2: Sure, sure. So I recently stepped down from um, as editor in chief of USA Today and of USA Today Network. And um uh during my tenure there, I have to say, first of all, I think Gannett, which owns the company, um, is more forward thinking than many other companies that I've seen, experience covered um in terms of valuing diversity, which is a positive. Um but one of the things that I brought with me there was th- there were things that I learned in researching, that's what she said, that I brought with me. One of them that I think is incredibly important. Uh, So I was already aware, as most people are who are in a position to hire, that when you're hiring, you should have a diverse slate of candidates, a, a mixture of gender and ethnicity and age and et cetera. So that I already knew. But what I learned from the men primarily who I interviewed who were really reaching across the gender divide, what I learned from them is that's not enough. What you really need is to have a diverse slate of people who are doing the interview, because if you have a diverse candidate, but you've got a bunch of white guys doing the interviewing, you still will not get optimal results. You will end up, you know, people, you'll end up with probably some of those coded words, right? Like, oh, she's not really a great culture fit. Or she just seems, you know, abrasive, which are, these are all sort of code words that, that are applied disproportionately to women. Um, and so it's really important to have a diverse slate of interviewers because otherwise you could lose really great successful candidates.
1: That was actually my experience once on a hiring panel many, many, many years ago, uh, where uh, they decided to have everyone in the department interview our our incoming future boss. And the recommendations from the pretty diverse slate of people who worked in the department were very different from the ones that that came down from the top of the company. Everyone was very surprised by by those differences.
2: Right, right. You're exactly right. I mean, that's, Um, You know, that is, that's what's behind, that's what she said, right? That the whole point is really to open our eyes, both men and women, to these sort of issues. This is not, you know, written for sexual predators to say, hey, predators, (laughs) you know, this is really written for men and women who want to get this right. And which is the vast, vast, vast majority of people. Um, And, and there's just, we all have blind spots. And the idea is to kind of peel away the blind spots, to, to tell stories, um, just engaging stories about people who have gone through this. Um, you know, we tell the story of, um, the history of Tupperware, which is fascinating, um, uh, because that was, uh, essentially a failure when it was created in the 50s. Earl Tupper, who created it, was an absolute failure until he teamed up with a woman, um, named Brownie Wise and, uh, who she had this insight. He, he knew how to make a great product and had no idea how to sell it. She understood the customer, the woman. Um, and this was after World War II and, um, she realized, first of all, that nobody knew how to do it because you have to burp it. Nobody knew what that was back then. So women didn't know how to use it. So she realized that you had to show them and that you should do it at a house party. And she also realized there were all these women after World War II who had worked in the factories who suddenly were ejected, sent home, but they had lots of ambition and they really wanted to be productive. And she mobilized this huge sales force of women to, to do these home Tupperware parties. And it was tremendously successful. And the only reason it was successful and is because you had the two of them with their differing perspectives who were, who were working on this together. Um, it's also, it's also sort of an object lesson because, um, and we have seen this as well. Um, when she got too successful, she was the first woman ever featured on the cover of Business Week magazine. When she became too successful, her partner, Earl Tupper, fired her. Not only did he fire her, he wrote her out of the company history. And not only that, she had written a book and he actually got a bulldozer, dug a hole in the ground at headquarters, got every copy of her book and buried it. <laughs> so, wow. um, lesson learned there, right? So, you know, we've come a long way since then, but there, we, we still, um, there's a lot of stories in the book that, that sort of illustrate the, the, um, both the history, but also sort of where we're going and how we can be successful. So if
1: you have one recommendation for a place to start for a CEO, a CFO, someone who is interested in changing their company culture from the top down, a man or a woman or a person of other gender, what would you recommend as a starting point?
2: Well, look, the overall point of that's what she said is engage men right the 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 overarching point is we need men to be part of this conversation because otherwise we will never get to a solution. so I would say, depending on whether you're a man or a woman, um, reach out across that divide and and don't you know for men, I would say we need to eliminate the fear factor or the, the fear you're going to say something wrong um, and it's just important to engage, and women will will welcome that. And and by the way, I think this is the best possible moment in my lifetime to do that um, because of the Me Too movement. Um, it's top of mind. It's top of mind for men and women. And, you know, men are do have these questions about how to act and women um, are really open to having this discussion with men. So I think we're actually at a really good point. And I I, I will tell you that one really interesting sort of data point for me is when I started the reporting, um, you know, when I would talk about these issues in mixed company, the, the, the men would clam up. Um, and even I remember, you know, when I first wrote the article on which the book was based, I did some television around it and it would only be women talking to me, like the men on the panels would keep silent and, the difference between then and now, and now I've, I've been you know, making um, you know, some television appearances and talking about these issues, and the men are really, really eager to engage. And I think that is such a positive development, and I'd like to see that continue. And that really is the mission of That's What She Said, is to make these issues discussable and comfortable for men and women.
0: We've been talking with Joanne Lipman. You can find her book, That's What She Said, in stores right now. Joanne, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's been a great conversation. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, PW Associate Children's Reviews Editor Mesha Burnett talks about audiobooks for children. Stay tuned.
0: I'm Armistead Maltin, the author of the
2: memoir Logical Family, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, Mesha Burnett, PW's Associate Editor for Children's Reviews, is here to tell us all about children's audiobooks. Hello, Mesha.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me on. It's very nice to have you here. Thank, <laughs> thank you for you. joining us. So uh, tell us a little bit about the world of children's audiobooks, about which I know nothing. So so mm-hmm. please begin from the beginning and enlighten us.
3: Okay, great. Well, it's, it's a really um, exciting... Category right now, and um, we we recently launched our uh, Global Kids Connect Breakfast Series um, with a spectacular event called the New World of Audio that specifically talked about children's audio and and where we're at in the industry right now. Um, it's obviously not. Not a new publishing category um, audio has been been around since we had Lps since we had radio um, and it is it is a category that of course evolves as technology evolves um, and so it's it's really kind of at a, at a um, entering a renaissance right now um, with a lot of the with our um, smartphones and with our smart smart speakers um, so there are definitely some some really intriguing things happening, and we learned all about them at at, uh, at the event last week.
1: So I, I hadn't really thought of the the records I used to listen to that said, you turn the page when you hear the beep as children's audio. But right. that's sort of where this got its start.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, when, when we think about that, those, those of us that are old enough anyway, um, we do remember those first audiobooks we had in various formats, um, whether record or maybe in our Sony Walkman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there, there is a great deal of nostalgia that goes along with
1: that. Yeah, absolutely. So what's happening in the field today?
3: Well, going back uh, just a minute to smart speaker technology, which obviously oh, okay. is is something pretty new, um, and but it's very rapidly growing. I think a lot of the excitement that's going on in children's audio and audiobooks in general... Does have to do with, with having these these speakers in the homes, and
1: you mean things like Amazon Alexa or Right, exactly,
3: home. yeah, in a way it 's harkening back to the old days of radio, where you kind of have family members gathered around this, this device, um, potentially listening together, um, and a lot of publishers are, are really picking up on, on this hunger for, for audio storytelling. That being said, um, this is all kind of unfolding as we speak. Um, This is all pretty recent. Um, The audio industry has definitely grown uh, substantially the last couple of years, both uh, internationally and Mm -hmm. and here. So we're seeing a lot of different types of audiobooks. Um, Obviously, we have um, audio editions of the Harry Potter books, so we're seeing a lot of new classics, mm-hmm. um, as well as classics, like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, um, coming out with exciting narration. One thing we're also starting to see a lot of is um, the opportunity for originals. Um, and that is especially exciting.
0: For audio originals. So, right, exactly. So, So a so, so family could be sitting around with the, the smart speaker mm-hmm. and ask for, for a story by so-and-so, by some author, and then they'll be able to pull up perhaps an audio book that um, was not available in print.
3: Right, exactly. Um, that wasn't available in print, but a lot of the children's publishers are looking into... Create, you know, um, prequels to to mm. books that are well known in in print. So, so kids are uh, getting now to to listen to their some of their favorite characters and basically discover new stories um, um, with these kind of f- familiar people. So tie-ins almost. Yeah, tie-ins and and um, and it is interesting be- because so you know we we've been telling stories. Um, this was one of the the oldest form of storytelling. So. Being, being read to um, and hearing a narrative, I, I think it's very near and dear to people's hearts. What
1: were some of the other things that came up at the Global Kids Connect events?
3: Well, I think what was really surprising, um, and that was talked about a lot, is... Is just how how we're seeing this evolution of of audiobooks from really sort of you know being associated with with libraries and and more educational settings and and being a you know um, a learning aid possibly for struggling readers to to really kind of becoming a medium of choice and 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 we're seeing that in households and now we're also seeing it um, as a rights category going from subsidiary rights to primary rights um, and that's happening. Um, both here and abroad, um, and in fact, Audible just recently launched launched in Italy. And so we're also seeing even uh, literary scouts reaching out for audio exclusives. And and the potential for, for example, you know, if, if you're going to translate um, a book from English into German, you know, um, your page count is going to go up immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, you do it with audio, and, and it's, a, it's a different story. Hmm. So, so So we're just, you know, really seeing... A lot of different kinds of opportunity um, and, and, and looking at the ease that we can, you know, s- share these stories cross-culturally as well.
1: I hadn't even thought about audio rights for translations, but I'm right. sure that's its own entire field.
3: It is. It, it, it's its it own beast. And and, and, it, and it is, you know, kind of a um, a brave new world. People are kind of, you know, really kind of standing at a precipice and, 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 and figuring out, OK, what can we do with audio? Putting familiar characters in, in kind of a new setting, and the possibility of multimedia presentations of stories and including visual elements mm-hmm. with, with audiobooks, books, um, kids' audiobooks, which, of course, you know, these stories have a huge visual component. And, and so really the sky's kind of the limit in terms of dreaming up um,
1: where we go from here. I've definitely known some young kids who take their iPods to bed so they can listen to endless bedtime stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that my my toddler is already being... Primed for story time by, by daycare. Um, every, every once in a while I'm handed a book and mm-hmm. then my child will sit in front of me cross-legged as though it is story time ah, now. and I am being informed great. of this. Um, and I can, I can really picture a kid sitting mm-hmm. that way in front of, you know, speakers in front of their stereo or their computer or their tablet or their Alexa yeah. or what have you. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um,
1: and, and how about, you know, Mark, you have, you have older kids. Um, mm-hmm. how, how are they? feeling about this kind of storytelling oh
0: unfortunately i wish they would take to it my daughter Mm -hmm. takes to it a little bit more than my son who uh uh, still is not uh, really enjoying sitting down listening to something but my Mm -hmm. daughter will i mean and that's a lot Mm -hmm. of fun and actually i haven't even thought about doing it with our google home which uh is something i may try this weekend
1: (laughs) (laughs) well it sounds like a really a lot of exciting things are happening yeah definitely and um
3: you know, unlike when you're sitting together as a family watching TV, um, if, if you're listening to an audiobook together, you can still engage with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, you can make eye contact. You can um, you can even multitask. And I, I think that was another big takeaway from from our audio event is, you know, we live in a society of multitaskers, um, whether we're driving, commuting on the subway or doing dishes and in, in fact, a lot of people um, who were recently surveyed, um, speaking about their um, smart speaker use, say that 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 it's they're using the smart speaker in ways that they used to use the television. So if, you know, if you are you are cooking and you like the sound of voices in the background, um, people are kind of transitioning and really really embracing this this technology in interesting ways
1: that sounds great well thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about it and uh, we'll have you back in a year or two when the dust settles and we see uh, what exciting innovations have come up
0: and meanwhile you can uh, uh, our listeners can read this this week just go to our website publishersweekly.com thank you so much alright thank, thank you thank you
1: Misha. and now a final word from our sponsors
0: Beyond the Headlines Beyond the Routine Beyond the Book I'm Chris Keneally host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series Beyond the Book And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Join us next week for an interview with Morgan Jerkins, author of This Will Be My Undoing. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
1: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at slash PW Radio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story thanks for listening
0: you've been listening to publisher's weekly radio show